Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to make ever more complicated ways to procrastinate him starting his actual research. This episode is going to be a continuation of our mini-series on the history of coal. Now, coal might seem really boring, but the thesis of this entire project is that coal changed the world. The world that we live in today, the world of computers, the world of international travel, the world of cars, the world of, you know, the information revolution, all of that is built on the foundation that coal built. And over the next few episodes, I will be talking about coal in the 18th century. We're going to be doing this thematically. This episode, I'm going to be talking about the 18th century more generally and talk about like actual things that happened in the coal industry itself. Next episode, I'm going to be talking about coal and iron. The episode after that, I'm going to be talking about the steam engine and the cotton industry and so on. And it's important to note before we even start that this division of different topics up into thematic buckets is, you know, bullshit. It's not how history happens. It's a way that we conveniently chop history up so that this podcast episode isn't a Dan Carlin-esque seven hours long and instead is a more manageable 20 or 40 minutes. The developments happened all together. They fed off of one another. The people who were working in one area were working in the other area. So people learned how to use coal in new ways, like make iron. And then they also used coal to make steam engines, which were made out of iron. And then the metal and steam engines together let people mine coal easier, which made coal cheaper, which allowed people to make more iron and steam engines. Everything gets into a wild, complicated feedback loop, the bottom line of it is that coal got cheaper and cheaper and more useful and more useful and more popular and more popular. By the end of the 18th century, Britain was a coal economy. And this is as good a time as any to point out that this story, at least for the 18th century, is going to be really parochial. It's going to focus a lot on the history of Britain, mostly England and Scotland, mostly particular places in England and Scotland like the north of England or the Midlands, where there's lots of coal and lots of weird inventors going around trying to figure out what to do with coal. But I want to just give a caveat. This parochialism is not going to remain. At the end of the 18th century, Britain had perfected the coal economy. In the 19th century, which we'll get to in a month, two months, who knows how long these things take, in the 19th century, coal begins to take over the world. Now, before we jump into the 18th century, I want to just give a little bit of a recap. There was a lot of coal in Britain. There still is a lot of coal in Britain, and a lot of this coal is easily accessible. It was up near the surface, so people didn't have to build big mines, and these coal fields were close to navigable rivers, or even better, they were close to the ocean, and so that meant that coal could be shipped to a lot of different places. Starting in the 16th century, coal became incredibly important for people living in cities, particularly London. It was used to heat people's houses when they couldn't afford wood. This became super important in the 17th century, a period that we call the Little Ice Age. It became important because things got colder and people had cause to use more things to burn, to heat themselves up, and also because there were fewer and fewer forests, so there was less wood to go around to heat things. 
also over the 17th century, people started perfecting methods of using coal to make things. The first industries to jump on this bandwagon were those industries that were energy hungry, things that required boiling, making beer because you needed to boil the wort and, bo- you know, you needed to boil water over and over and over again to make beer, dyeing clothes because you needed to dial the dyes and the mordants, heating copper and melting it and forging it into things, uh, boiling salt, anything that needed energy started to shift into coal. But coal is not entirely easy to work with. It's not like wood. It's something else. It's smoky. It often has lots of sulfur. And there were a number of industries that were difficult to use coal in. The big industry here is iron. Iron is incredibly important. It is really useful. It's really energy hungry. And it's really difficult to smelt and to forge with coal. So before we jump in to the story of coal in the 18th century, I think it would probably be useful to talk about what the 18th century was actually like. So let's imagine a city, Uh, maybe London. London's a good place to start. Imagine it, picture it in your mind, what do you see? Well, if you've been listening to this podcast, you would probably answer for smoke. There's a lot of smoke in the air, not only from coal fires, but also from wood fires. People are burning stuff for heat, and so it would be slightly hazy. There would be some narrow streets with horses going down the road pulling carts, but there'd also be people dragging palanquins and hauling loads on their backs. Uh, Men and women would be walking through these mostly unpaved streets. Uh, There would be houses standing of stone and wood. Uh, If you went up and talked to the people, they would speak English, uh, you would have a little bit of trouble understanding them because the accent would be different. Uh, Many of the people you would meet would be illiterate. And so as you would be walking down the streets, you'd be able to tell what a given building actually did from a sign. It wouldn't have words on it. It would have a symbol, like a cart and a horse, or a belt buckle or a wig or something or a you know a, 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 the king's arms or a, a lamb and flag or you would have a, a picture to help you remember what the place actually is and people would look younger they'd also look dirtier and less healthier and most people would be short but you would notice that there were more children around because there were the you know demographics were different and a greater proportion of the population was younger And you'd also notice that you'd be able to read people's uh, socioeconomic position, for lack of a better word, really easily just by looking at them. Rich people would be dressed in awesome clothing that would have, you know, rubies on them and gems and be, you know, uh, embroidered really ornately. They'd be wearing awesome boots and hats and ruffles and they'd be taller too. They'd be five or six inches taller than everybody else. They'd be healthier. They'd walk with a swagger. They'd boss people around. You would just be able to look at the crowd and point out who was upper class. And there were kings and queens, too. Of course there were kings and queens. This is a history of Britain. We're going to be talking about some kings and queens. Now, for the 18th century, our kings and queens are pretty easy to remember. There's one queen named Anne. And when Anne died, the parliament invited over Anne's very distant Hanoverian cousins to sit on the throne. Now, these guys are really easy to remember. The first one was named George I. The second one was named George II, and the third one was named George III. We call this the Georgian 
era because all of the kings were named George. And the dynasty, which still sits, is we call the Hanoverian dynasty because they came over from Hanover. The first George uh, didn't really speak good English. He didn't like living in England and he would go back to Hanover whenever he had the chance. The first of these monarchs who was actually born in Britain and spoke English as his first language was George III, who you might know from Hamilton. He's the dude who sings uh, the best songs. Uh, if you're an 18th century British historian, you might like him the best. Uh, but that's the George III that the American uh, rebellion was actually fighting against. Now, this monarchy wasn't all-powerful. It wasn't just like the king could point and tell people to do stuff. The monarchy had been constrained by generations and generations of politicking. Parliament uh, the elected body of officials who could pass laws and levy taxes and uh, debate things in public, they were incredibly politically important. Now, although the House of Commons was elected, it wasn't elected in any way that we might call democratic. The vote was not given to many women. It wasn't given to many poor people. Uh, it was determined by a weird customary set of decisions that were highly, highly local. MPs weren't meant to be representative of some, you know, fair amount of the population. They were representative of some sort of body that had been given political power at some point. So uh, the universities of Oxford and Cambridge had members of parliament. And if you were a graduate of Oxford and Cambridge, you actually could vote for these members of parliament no matter where you lived. There were some small towns that were dwindling in population until there were only a dozen people living there. And they elected members of parliament because sometime in the you know 14th century, somebody got a grant from the king, a charter that said that they could elect members of parliament. There were really big cities like Manchester and Birmingham that even though where they were really, really big cities, didn't have any members of parliament at all. So it's not a democracy. It's not a monarchy. It's something weird and in between. And when we imagine society, we shouldn't imagine it like we do American society today or British society today, which is some sort of, you know, interlocking uh, bunch of groups that all talk to one another and, you know, vaguely leave one another alone. British society in the 18th century was deeply hierarchical. People imagined it as a great chain of being, running from the monarch at the very top all the way down through the aristocracy. There were about 5,000 aristocratic and gentry families who owned a ton of land, who hung out with one another and intermarried with one another and, you know, funded everything and fought in the wars and got elected to parliament and wrote. And then further down, you might have local uh, elites who would be good tradesmen or working in commerce or be merchants or be manufacturers of some sort. And then even further down, you would have the masses of people, the workers, the farmers, the people who actually toiled in the land. The 18th century was also the birth of the English novel. These big, sentimental, kind of boring tomes that were named after the main characters that are a real slog to get through. Things like Pamela and Clarissa and Mole Flanders and Robinson Crusoe. You might know this as the century when English got its first big dictionary written by Samuel Johnson. Uh, male fashion hadn't undergone the great renunciation of the 19th century, so people blinged out when they could. They wore silks and 
gold and glittering jewels and high heels and, you know, big wigs. And at the beginning of the century, they wore swords. And at the end of the century, they didn't wear swords. And I have no idea why. And I can't find a good book about why. But it's true. People didn't wash as much as they did today, in part because washing with warm water was really expensive because you had to heat the water. But we shouldn't think that the people were especially dirty. They weren't, you know, incredibly disgusting. They uh, would often change their undergarments multiple times a day, and that was kind of a way of proxy washing. They would apply perfumes and oils to their hair and to their skin so that they wouldn't smell so bad. However, the streets were really messy. People would poop into chamber pots in their rooms and then throw it out into a uh, pit in the back of their house. Or if they pit was full, they'd throw it out into the street. Uh, the streets were also filled with horses that would take poops on the street and fill the street up with gigantic piles of horse excrement. And these streets would be muddy as well. Many of them, even in a city like London, would be unpaved. And when it rained, and it rains a lot, they would get muddy and, you know, slippery and really gross. The 18th century was also a century of incredible demographic and economic growth. In 1700, there were about 5 million people in England. At the close of our time period in the early uh, 1800s, that number had increased to about 20 million. And all throughout this time, people started to be able to buy a little bit more stuff, get a little bit more food, economic well-being, although this is highly controversial, increased probably for the average person. Another thing that was happening was that Europe was taking on the world. And after the fall of the Roman Empire, Europe was a relative backwater. It wasn't as productive, it was underpopulated, it didn't make a ton of stuff that the world economy really liked. However, after the European colonization of the Americas began, there was a new global economic order that was centered on Europe. Europe took valuable raw materials from the New World, particularly silver, and it shipped them to the East, particularly to China and India, where it bought all of the wonderful manufactured goods that the Orient provided. China, silk, lacquerware, along with all of the great uh, medicines and plants that they had uh, in places like Indonesia. Spices, peppers, teas. And Britain begins to get in on this American game as well. It starts colonies in North America and launches aggressive trade campaigns in the Indian subcontinent. We know much of this story from American history, but I want to just point out how this changes the texture of daily life in 18th century Britain. Because of this deep connection to the wider world, the streets, especially of a city like London, were filled with foreign goods. Not only were there coffee houses on every corner, some of which were advertised with, you know, street signs bearing Moors' heads, bearing turbaned heads of Arabic people, but also there was a spread of animals. Pet stores carried canaries, monkeys, and uh, snakes and other exotic animals. There were black people and Indian people and Alaskan people and Pacific kings on the streets of London. People sipped African coffee from Chinese cups that were sweetened with Caribbean sugar while they read their London newspaper at the coffee house. So this place, Britain, 
even though it seems parochial, even though we're going to be talking about a bunch of white guys who wore wigs, we're already deeply connected with the history of the wider world. Now, finally, the 18th century was a century of slow and grinding war, mostly war against France. From 1688 to 1815, Britain fought five world wars, all of them primarily against France, all of them with a confusing and rotating assortment of allies. These were truly world wars. The Seven Years' War, in which George Washington was a general in North America, took place not only uh, in what became the United States, but also in India, Africa, and Europe. There's a couple important things that we should take from the century of war. First is why it happened. British people told themselves that they were upholding Protestantism, that this was a religious battle against Catholic France who wanted nothing more than to topple the British religious settlement. But it was also economic. It was also a battle for valuable holdings across the world that British and French governments and industrialists and capitalists needed for their valuable raw materials like slaves and sugar and silver Another thing to remember is that these wars were huge. Much of the century was spent at war, and these wars destabilized societies. They were incredibly expensive. They had massive amounts of suffering and killing and death, and they were really expensive. The last war in this cycle, the Napoleonic Wars, stretched from about 1793 on to 1815. That's more than 20 years long, on and off of fighting a grinding war against France. So that's the background. And I am really aware that I left a ton of stuff out, that this is a really patchy view of the 18th century, but I think that it gives enough context that when you're imagining these things in your mind, you can picture the people a little bit better. Yeah, they're probably wearing funny clothes. Yeah, they're probably wearing wigs, uh, but they were people like us, literate, uh, thoughtful, connected to wider economies, and uh, in a place that was feeling like it was going from success to success to success. So now let's think about coal. One of the really surprising things over the 18th century is that even though the population increased a couple times over, even though coal started to be used for all of these new kinds of things, coal stayed cheap, even during wartime. And now this is really surprising because back in the 17th century, even though coal was really central to people's daily lives, when there was a war, coal prices would sometimes go up by five or six times because of the difficulty in transport. And this would cause people to riot uh, because they were you know, going to freeze to death because they wouldn't get their coal. But in the 18th century, the coal industry was so vibrant that it managed to keep costs low. And that is because they ramped up the output. In 1700, uh, British coal mines were making about a little bit less than 3 million tons of coal a year. Half a century later, in 1750, that increased to about 5 million tons of coal. Around 1775, before uh, some of the major developments of the Industrial Revolution, that was up to nearly 9 million tons. By 1800, it was 15 million tons. By 1830, it was 30 million tons, doubling again. Every year, coal output increased by a 
about 1.2 to about 2.5%, which is an incredible long-term growth. And it's even more incredible when you think that coal gets much more difficult to mine the longer you do it. In the very beginning, you can just pick coal up off of the ground sometimes. It doesn't take a ton of work to go off, take a pickaxe and get some coal and wheel it over to a place. It gets much more difficult as mines have to get deeper and more complex. One big problem is water. You, you wouldn't think it. You wouldn't think that one of the biggest problems in mining is water, but mines flood. That's because uh, the earth is not just some big bubble that, you know, impermeably washes water off of it. No, when it rains, that rain goes through the earth and fills up the cavities that it can fill up. And when you have mines that go deep underground, then a lot of that water can actually fill up the mines that you're trying to, to work. This can, you know, disrupt works and it can even drown people. To get deeper and deeper mines as the quest for coal pushed people further and further into the earth, you needed to figure out a way of getting the water out. The first solution was just to use buckets. Now, there was already a system of getting people and coal up and down the mine shaft. It was called a gin. Oftentimes it was, you know, run by horses walking around and around a circle. You can imagine it like a primitive elevator taking up and down things. The first solution was just to put buckets filled with water into the gin, where they would then be emptied. But that was obviously not good enough. Another way of getting water out of the mine is to use a mechanical pump. And for that, people used a new invention, the steam engine. Now, we're going to be doing a full history of steam engines in a couple of weeks, so I'm not going to go into great detail here about what the steam engine actually is and its history and the differences between the Savory engine and the Newcomen engine and Watts engine. I just want to explain the basics. And the basics is that these first steam engines turn heat into work. And the work that they do is that they pump. And they can pump water out of mines. It's hideously energy inefficient. They're really, really bad at doing the things that they want to do. I think that they're about 0.7% of the energy that they use actually gets converted into work. But at the pithead, where coal is plentiful and cheap, they became indispensable. There are about 2,000 of them in use over the first half of the 18th century. Now, they weren't perfect. They weren't even good. Uh, the first atmospheric engines could only pump water up a maximum of 32 feet, which meant that for these deep mines, you needed a bunch of them in series to actually get water out. But they helped and they allowed for deeper and ever deeper mines, pushing forward this vast increase in coal output. Another big problem was transport. Now, coal is heavy, and as, you know, by its weight, it's, it's really not very valuable. It's, you know, definitely less valuable than other things that people were trading in, like diamonds or gold or tea or coffee. It was less valuable even than really not very valuable stuff that people traded in, like fish. It was by far the least valuable trading good that people could carry by weight. 
Because of coal's bulkiness and because of the inefficiency in transporting it, the majority of the price that people paid in a city like London for coal was not actually the cost of mining it. In London, the cost that people paid was mostly the cost of transport. Every 10 miles that coal had to be shipped from the pithead doubled its price. Water carriage was better. It cost about 20 times less uh, to ship something with water, but still it was really expensive to ship coal. And on top of that, coal was something that the government loved to tax because it was a necessity. Um, in the beginning of the 18th century, uh, in London, the tax was about a shilling per chaldron, which is a big unit of measurement. Now, I don't expect you to have any sense of what a shilling per chaldron of coal actually means, so I'll tell you it's about 4 to 5% tax. But at the end of the 18th century, that tax had increased to about 10 shillings per chaldron. It was twice the original price of the pithead. It was as much cost as shipping the coal 400 miles at sea. That's how much it was being taxed. So another one of the problems that people had to surmount to make this massive increase in the price of coal is transport. Now, part of this is transporting it within the mine itself. Imagine the mine works as you get the hewers, you know, chopping away at a, uh, 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 the face of the mine and getting these giant chunks of black heavy stone. We need to get that from the face of the mine over to the shaft to get it winched up so that it can be loaded into a cart or onto a pack horse. Now, sometimes this would just be done with buckets. You'd have a kid who'd have a bucket on his back, and that bucket would be filled with coal from the coal face and then walked over to the uh, uh, mine shaft where it would be loaded into more buckets to be taken up by a gin onto the surface. Obviously, this is inefficient. Um, sometimes it was done by horses who would be living underground, but this was even worse than using children because when horses died, and they died pretty often when they were doing underground coal hauling work, well, it was really expensive. As things got deeper and deeper and deeper, these problems of intermine transport became a headache for mine owners because they really needed to make things as efficient as humanly possible to actually generate some kind of profit. One of the solutions was to make these little primitive railways, basically, having wagons and sledges that would run on uh, wooden rails to make them less frictiony and to make them run more efficiently. And of course, when the coal actually got up on the land, then it was an even bigger headache to haul. There were a whole bunch of developments in getting coal from the pithead to the places where it was needed. And some of these developments can frankly seem like no-brainers to us in the 20th century. One that surprised me was carts. Yeah, carts were a really big development in the history of coal transport. I have this quote from the early 18th century where people in Cumberland were really surprised when they started using carts to haul coal. Don't believe me, here's a quote. A cart being an uncommon thing here in those days struck such a terror into the poor country people who, to save themselves, were glad to get up their coals at any ship they could where they would be safe and free from the carts. So carts were a big development 
in this uh, process of getting coal to the ocean where the coal could then go to markets like in London. But there was a lot more developments than just getting carts and filling them with coal. One way was to take that method of using rails, which was so useful down in the pits, and put those rails up on the land. Now, this was really efficient because most times when you're trying to get coal from a mine down to the ocean, you're just trying to get it to go downhill. And so if you have a cart on rails, you basically can just let gravity do most of the work for you and get that massive amount of coal to where it needs to go. Then you just need to winch that cart to a horse and then get the horse to drag it back up the rails to get filled with coal again. Now, this thing right here, I just want to point out, may not seem like a world epochal shift, getting carts on rails to haul coal, but it will come back again and again and again, because this method, getting coal to the ocean on a railway, will become one of the most important developments in all of world history, because it's this that leads to the railway. It's this that leads to steam transport. It's this that will lead to the opening up of the Americas with the railway system. It's this that will make the modern world with coal, of course. So there's a bunch of other ways that, that land transport became cheaper. Uh, one was that they developed toll roads called turnpikes because they would be, you know, blocked off by literal pikes that you would pay to have somebody turn up so you could get your wagon or cart through. But the biggest developments were in water transport. And the thing that we need to talk about here is the canal system. Canals are basically man-made rivers that help to improve water transport. And after about the 1760s, there was a canal mania as people built more and more and more canals in more and more places so that heavy, bulky things like coal could be shipped at less cost. These were used even in incredibly short trips to make bulk transport that much cheaper. Now, rather than telling you a bunch of facts about canal mania, I want to just tell the story of a single canal, the most famous canal in British history, the first canal really to get on the map, the Bridgewater Canal linking Manchester to nearby coal mines that was opened in the 1760s. Now, this was a massive feat of engineering. It used uh, aqueducts that spanned gorges and rivers. It went underneath mountains. It was massive and expensive and amazing to people. Just think of this. The canal actually went underground and could fill up barges at the coal pit. It went underground so much that there were 46 miles of underground canals in the Bridgewater Canal system. Just imagine that. Imagine that there were 46 miles of barges going back and forth in the darkness before electricity, before oil, before any of this stuff, carved mostly by hand. And the Bridgewater Canal was so efficient that just at the very moment of it opening, it cut the price of coal in Manchester by a half. Canals like the Duke of Bridgewater's Canal would be made over and over again, linking coal pits with important markets throughout the 18th century. So these developments in coal mining, in coal transport, meant that the price of coal 
remained relatively inelastic, even though demand for it increased a lot. Now, this is something to keep in mind as we talk about the rest of the developments in our history. We're going to be talking about some of the most important moments in technological history. And usually when people talk about these, they mention the important inventors who come up with the amazing ideas, who tinker in their workshops for weeks, days, years, trying to figure out the right valve or something for a steam engine. And those people, those guys are important. And I want to stress that they're important. But for this story, they would be nothing if it were not for the cheap coal. And that cheap coal would not be cheap if it were not for all of the work of those horses hauling barges across canals. It would not be cheap if it were not for the expert work of the coal hewers who would lay down at the coal face, chipping away at the rock so that people could get their big lumps of coal. It would not be cheap if it were not for the fact that British housewives were heating their homes with coal for hundreds of years and so knew how to start a coal fire. It wouldn't be cheap if people did not know how to build the special kinds of coal furnaces that, you know, let you do that kind of work. It wouldn't be cheap if it were not for all of that labor, that invisible labor that goes down deep underground. And that's the story that we're going to be telling over the next couple of episodes, how this cheap coal began to change things in a bunch of different, very important areas. Next episode, we're going to be dealing with one of the most important changes, coal and iron. Thanks very much for listening today to Making of a Historian. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes. Share us on social media. Uh, go to our website at historian.live where we have a bunch of extras that if you like this podcast, you're probably going to like a lot. We have an illustration by our colleague Duncan Barton. We have a bunch of graphs and links to primary sources. We have links to all of the secondary sources that I use to get all of those you know, things that you listen to today. Uh, thanks very much to Duncan Barton, our illustrator, and to Jonathan Lear, who did the music. Thank you to all those people who mentioned this on Twitter or Reddit or Facebook or who like the page or who do all that, you know, invisible uh, social media labor that I'm pretty bad at. If you want to help the show, just click one of those buttons on the internet that says that you like this. Thank you, and I'll speak to you guys soon.